0: Before we start with today's podcast, I want to just let you know that the TallyRoom's guide to the next federal election is now complete and up on the TallyRoom website. The guide features profiles of all 150 lower house seats and all eight senate contests including each seat's history, candidates and election results. Every seat guide features maps showing the results of the 2016 election, as well as a comment section where you can discuss each race. If you find this guide or this podcast useful, would you consider chipping in as a Patreon donor? Thanks to my existing donors, I've been able to start this podcast and spend more time on the website and get this guide ready in case of a possible early election, but I still need more support to allow me to both run a podcast and write the election guide sustainably. Over the next few months, I'll be covering the Wentworth by-election and then gearing up for the Victorian state election, and more donors means I can spend more time on this work. As little as $5 a month would be a big help. Thanks for listening, and let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Rowey. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the new Liberal leadership, the Wagga Wagga by-election and competition between right-wing minor parties. My guest today is Glenn Kefford Glenn is a lecturer in political science at Macquarie University. Hello, Glenn. Hey, Ben. Thanks for coming. We have a new Prime Minister in this country since our last episode. Scott Morrison won the ballot for lib- the Liberal Party leadership, winning 45 votes to 40 for Peter Dutton. Uh, Polls since the leadership change have been very bad for the government. A news poll put Labor on 56% of the two-party preferred vote, while an essential poll put Labor on 55%. These polls have shifted William Bow's bludger track polling average from 51.5% for Labor up to 54.7%, which would translate into a landslide victory if an election was held and those were the numbers. Glenn, how do you think the change in leadership is going to affect the next federal election?
1: Well, I think that the initial data that we've seen come out is, you know, it's obviously pretty horrific for the government. Um, I think we definitely need to see some more data here, um, a few more polls, just to sort of triangulate in a little bit, because we know historically that a change of leader leads to a bit of a, a bounce, a little bit of a honeymoon period. We've seen it in almost every single one of these leadership changes over the last decade or so. So this was the first one I think that we hadn't seen that bounce or even anything resembling a honeymoon period um at least in the first news poll so
0: yeah it's interesting that uh the the liberal leadership spill was different to the last couple in that the last couple there was a clear challenger who was more popular than the than the current leader that wasn't the case this time like Dutton was less popular than Malcolm Turnbull and Scott Morrison doesn't doesn't have a particularly high level of popularity so the dynamic was very different so in one way it's not surprising that we have that um change
1: yeah no absolutely it it, it's it's not surprising and as you say there was a a clear challenger and that challenger was victorious eventually, you know, once they got to the, um, the second challenge. In this instance, the person who was successful wasn't even the, the first challenger. So we had this completely different dynamic. And I think this is going into the, the problems the government is having in trying to actually explain why, why did this even happen, right? Um, that, that, that when they're asked this in their interviews, they, they really struggled to give an answer which is reasonable, I think, to most people looking from the
0: outside. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's had these flow on effects where uh, the Wentworth uh, by-election is going to be held in October. Uh, it, it's entirely possible that the Liberal Party could lose that seat. We're going to cover that in more detail in another episode, but that is definitely an element of instability. But we already have Julia Banks, who is resigning from parliament in the seat of Chisholm, and she was the only Liberal to win a seat off Labor at the last election. So you look at the seat count and the coalition needs to actually gain one seat net to regain its majority because of the redistribution. And you have to look at someone like Chisholm and go, they're going to struggle to win there. And it, it starts to become quite hard to, to put together a majority.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, if you're trying to sort of unravel this all, um, I just continually come back to Queensland um, and you look at the, some of the key protagonists in this whole saga and it was a very Queensland-oriented sort of process where you had you know, key Queensland powerful figures like Dutton, like James McGrath, like the Queensland LNP state president, Gary Spence, who were all key agitators in this entire process. Um, so it's clearly about trying to shore up their support in Queensland and we know that a lot of those marginal seats i think it's like nine of the top 20 for the coalition are in queensland and that's clearly what they're scared about right
0: well yeah but i mean the the polls don't necessarily indicate that it's going to help them in queensland that's what that's what's strange about it and i, I do wonder if there's an element here that you know part of politics is about popularity and it's about winning but it's also about what what your party stands for and i think we often just to treat the major parties as institutions that are just about winning at all costs but of course they're not they they have principles and they have values and i think that there was this sense that uh the liberal party uh its values and its principles didn't fit with where someone like malcolm turnbull was taking them and that they weren't willing to go that far and that if that does translate into loss of electoral popularity i think that's a real challenge for them because they'll have this choice of do we you know stick to the hard right stick to someone like tony abbott or do we uh do things that are more electorally popular there's clearly a a theory that they have that by going to the right they will strengthen their base and they will recover the votes that have been lost to their right but there's uh you know i think i'm pretty skeptical about whether that that's a strategy that can succeed and clearly that that's a big part of what that fight in the liberal party has been about
1: yeah no i agree and i think that um it's been interesting to to just see the the talk about the base like this 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 reference to this mythical base which has come up in you know recent weeks in this whole debate when you know we know that with compulsory voting it's about winning the center as well right you've got to somehow attract uh, a broader range of voters and i mean i guess that was you know the the theory about why howard was so successful because he could keep the liberals and the conservatives all in the tent together Mm -hmm. um that's key to a lot of the i think the the dynamic that's going on at present, the friction that's going on within the Liberal Party, right? Mm. And that's clearly the driver from those in Queensland, um, that they think they're losing these votes on the right, in particular to One Nation, and then they're not getting all the preferences back, and then this has this huge flow-on effect.
0: Let's imagine for a second that the polls stay where they are, which is in the sort of 54 to 56% range for the Labor Party, and that would translate into like 90 to 100 seats, that sort of rough, rough area. That, that could have a very interesting um that that could make a big difference to the shape of an ex labor government you know if they win a large majority and they kind of have more freedom I'm, I'm not really sure what the dynamics of that would be but certainly it gives them more potential to strengthen their hand in the senate if if this election is close there's, an, there's not very much chance that labor and the greens could between the two of them win a majority you probably The best case scenario for them is to end up with kind of centrist senators like the Centre Alliance or Tim Storr or Darren Hinch holding the balance of power. But if you're looking at a landslide, you could imagine a few more seats flipping and things start to look quite different then. And that that could make a big difference to the shape of the next government.
1: Yeah, look, I think it was really interesting even hearing the pitch that was coming out in the media from potential candidates. So even Julie Bishop, for example, the pitch that we were told that she was making to her um, colleagues was effectively, I'm the best person to save the furniture, which, I mean, that's that's pretty incredible that they're already thinking about this. I mean, okay, we have these polls beforehand, but before the change, they were still sort of right there, right, it was 51-49, it's like yeah, the, the mean, margin of error.
0: And the trend had been going in the direction, like, basically since the end of the year uh, there had been this slow but steady decline in the labor support uh and you could have easily imagined a situation where they got within striking distance by the time of an election uh it wouldn't have been a it wouldn't have been a clean or a very easy victory but it was entirely possible one of the things i find really fascinating is not every leadership um change but it's it's not uncommon that you do have that element of saving the furniture that there's not necessarily an expectation that you're going to go on to great success but um just reducing the scale of disaster that was definitely an element in kevin rudd replacing gillard in 2013 but also uh turnbull replacing abbott in 2015 uh you know in the end they scraped by to win a bare majority but there was that sense of they were they were headed for a first term defeat uh and uh it is interesting that that dynamic was actually much less prominent this time around that Bishop Bishop's case was I'll save the furniture but in the end only 11 people voted for her and it was kind of pushed to the side uh, there was this expectation of right-wing orthodoxy that someone like Morrison could say I'm also orthodox in terms of the liberal party but I'm I'm l- more popular than Dutton I'm less hated than Dutton and that was kind of his pitch in the end that you know uh there, there has been quite a shift between his style and Turnbull's, even though Turnbull kind of informally supported him for the leadership.
1: Yeah. And I, I think, um, you know, you, you have to connect the dots here and the, the dots here go back to Longman. <laughs> you can't you can't take Longman out of the equation here. And I guess I found it really interesting in the aftermath of Longman, there was quite a few pieces from cephologists who, you know, made the the argument, which was of course factually correct, that you know, in terms of by-elections, in terms of historical swings against the government, that this wasn't extraordinarily or un, uh, unprecedented or whatever. But um, the reality is that you know, perception is everything in politics, and um, clearly the low primary for the LNP in Queensland scared a lot of um, Queensland LNP people. And also there was a second group that wanted to use this as a Trojan horse to advance their cause and to you know, effectively assassinate Turnbull. Yeah, so I think that there was the second group that um, maybe they didn't have the same level of fear about the primary vote and what's gonna happen in Queensland as you know, this, this first group who were obviously very concerned about their seats, but there was obviously, this has been a push from Queensland. And you look at the, the votes, Um, Even in the the first spill motion, it it was very clear here that, you know, it was something like 15 of the Queenslanders voted for the spill motion. And then in the second contest, um, you know, of course, they were all tied to to Dutton primarily. I think it was, again, about the same number that voted um, for Dutton a couple moved across to Morrison. Um, but the majority of them voted voted for Dutton.
0: one of the things I found interesting was that it wasn't just that they were all like solidly on the right previously. Um, most of the people who voted for Turnbull and switched to Dutton in 2018 uh, who were kind of that, you know, there were there were a bunch of different groups. There was people who were solid on one side and solid on the other and you had you had people who uh, just voted for the incumbent leader whoever it was but then the other group of the of the people who switched from turnbull to dutton nearly all of them were queenslanders like it was that it was the kind of loss of support there and james mcgrath who's a queensland senator had been one of the main numbers people for turnbull and switched to become a supporter of dutton so i do think there's definitely an element that the, that the queensland um lnp was the driving force behind dutton it'll be interesting to see how that plays out maybe in the state polls that we see about whether queensland Um, looks better for them or whether it just means that you know they the one nation vote dips a bit
1: especially comparing the the queensland voting numbers in the spill motion and in the contest between um dutton and morrison and bishop you look you saw the queenslanders they voted effectively as a block like almost no other state in australia and then you contrast that with western australia and you know it's obvious what's going on here right where um bishop gets no support and they all fall in behind either Morrison and Dutton. So just the fact that the Queenslanders all voted as a block there suggests that you know this is probably, this has been part of a kind of a strategy that they've been working towards for a while, you would assume, um, that so many of them supported the spill motion and the Longman by-election has to be important here in the strategy and backgrounding that's gone
0: on. Mm. And I mean, we focus on the 2PP, but at a certain point, if the One Nation vote gets high enough, maybe they start to worry about some of their lower house seats. They would do very badly in the Senate. They might worry. They might be worrying about the state politics situation. Uh, you can totally imagine that being that being on their minds as well, and that has a certain amount of rationality, and it kind of creates this burden where they're being dragged in one direction in certain places too. To see off a conservative threat while wanting to kind of occupy the centre ground, that um, will make it very difficult difficult for them to to stay united. Yeah,
1: and I mean, you know, it's it's kind of ironic that you know we go past we go back 10 years ago, and all of the discussion was about. Dealignment on the left—that Labor's leaking to the Greens—and you know this is going to have significant effects on the Labor Party being able to form government on their own—and this was always the debate. But then we've just seen, really, I would say, the last five or six years, um, just the the revolt on the right, the kind of fragmentation on the right, and um, it's really problematic for the the Liberal Party, but also in coalition with the National Party too, to play that game, right? Um, so they're getting the kind of same sort of... It's a little bit different, but they're getting a similar type of experience of the Labor Party trying to have to manage both the, their left and their right, both their flanks. So it's a real challenge.
0: So that's actually a good a good opportunity to switch over to discuss uh, our next topic. We've had a bunch of incidents in the last few weeks that kind of tell us a story about not just about them being stronger, but about the competition within these parties. Uh, a few weeks ago, before the spill... All of federal politics was focused on the first speech of Fraser Anning, a senator who filled the One Nation seat vacated by Malcolm Roberts, but went on to join Cater's Australian Party. His speech called for a final solution on Muslim immigration and a return to the White Australia policy. This moment highlighted a major dynamic in the next federal election, which is the competition between all of these different right-wing minor parties. One Nation leader Pauline Hanson condemned Anning's speech, despite many parallels with her own policies and rhetoric. Um, she will be in a contest to try and regain that One Nation seat at the next election. And it's not surprising to see a bit of conflict between Hanson and Anning, uh, even though you wouldn't normally expect Hanson to be criticising those kind of positions. And then in New South Wales, we have a contest between David Lanehelm of the Liberal Democratic Party and another former One Nation senator, Brian Burston, who's running with Clive Palmer's support. There's probably only room for one of those two in the Senate. And then the latest news in the last couple of days is that Mark Latham, the former Labor leader who has swung strongly to the right since leaving politics, uh, was a member of the Liberal Democratic Party, but has left the Liberal Democratic Party and there's a strong sense that he's considering uh, being a candidate for One Nation. So you may well see three high profile, either current senators or a former major party leader competing over what is probably only one minor right wing Senate seat in New South Wales. Glenn, where do you think the state of competition amongst all these small parties is standing at the moment?
1: Yeah, look, I think it's really developed in the last five years and it's started to um, really heat up as we've started to see this fragmentation on the right and a bit of a drift away from um, the coalition and, um, if I wanted to use Queensland as an example, the LNP, where um, I've looked at the the primary vote for the LNP um, in the last six, seven elections, and it's on a downward trajectory. And you're seeing de here in particular in, in Queensland, which is opening up opportunities for not just One Nation, but for CAP and whoever else, if there's some re-energised Palmer formation, UAP. Um, but clearly, this is a national trend as well, maybe not as Um, significant in terms of the number of people who were voting giving their first preferences to these right-wing minor parties so far as it is in queensland but there's this real fragmentation and fracturing that's going on on in the right and i think the idea um that many people had was that after the changes to the senate electoral system that we might start to see some mergers or we might start to see some deregistering of these kind of minor parties Um, But it hasn't really happened on the right so far yet. It seems like there's quite a few still there
0: and sort of the dynamic is very interesting. Well, we've seen a couple, although not all of them on the right, like we've seen small parties like the cyclists merging with the sex party and we've seen a couple of others like that. And the one that's been the most interesting was, uh, so Corey Bernardi, who was a Liberal Senator from South Australia, went off and formed his own party, the Australian Conservatives, which then merged with Family First. Uh, And... Thanks to that, the Australian Conservatives inherited two state seats in South Australia. And then subsequent to that, the one Democratic Labor Party member in the Victorian upper house, Rachel Carling Jenkins, joined uh, Bernardi's Conservatives. But uh, that's kind of come unstuck. One of those two South Australian seats was lost at the election earlier this year. And then Carling Jenkins recently quit uh, the Conservatives, seemingly over conflict around whether the party would actually give any support to run strongly in the Victorian election. So it suggests a certain amount of inability to, to create a unifying force there. And that, that's about it, you're right. Uh, we've, we've seen, um, we have seen an element, which I think is interesting, that um, when people have been leaving parties, uh, Brian Burston, Fraser Anning, a number of other people. Instead of creating their own new parties, they've tended to be joining other parties that already existed, which I find interesting. Yeah. Um, it does suggest that an expectation that they will need some kind of support to run in the election. You're not seeing the Brian Burston party.
1: The individuals who have defected in particular from One Nation and gone across to these other groupings, so Burston and Anning, um, then the fact that they've came out of One Nation has spread this nativist, anti-immigrant rhetoric across parties where, you know, we hadn't really seen it previously, where um, PUP, when it emerged in 2013, was not nativist, it was not anti-immigrant. I mean, one of their policies was to fly refugees to Australia, right? Um, yeah. and so they were not like that at all. They were like a catch-all party. Um, CAP hasn't really been anti-immigrant in the past. Like, it was nothing like the speech we saw from Anning. So um, the fact that these guys are dispersing um, across the rest of the centre-right, we're seeing a bit of a a Hansonisation of right-wing minor parties in Australia. Mm. And I think it suggests that we're probably going to see some pretty strong anti-immigration rhetoric at the next election, and they're going to be all competing for that that market, and it is a pretty substantial market there for these types of um, parties.
0: It is interesting that uh, the last election, while we had the changes to Senate voting reform that theoretically might make it part make it harder for a very small party to succeed, what it did indicate was two things. One is that you can still attract preferences, and preferences still matter. They just they are decided by the voter and not by not um, on block by the party. The other thing was it was a double dissolution and it did, did make it a lot easier to get elected. You would expect to see a thinning of the ranks. Certainly, Lionhelm and Burston can't both win re-election. It does certainly seem like um, the added, the approach at the moment is competition, not cooperation. Do you do you see a difference in how they're operating based on like what sort of minor parties they are? I mean, one party that's actually done really well, but has had no federal success, is the Shooters, and they seem like they kind of come from a different a different background to some of the nativist parties
1: yeah i think i think the shooters are a little bit different and um one of one of the things that's interesting about the shooters i think in comparison um to some of these others that have emerged like australian conservatives and palmer's new formation and so on is that they have tried clearly to to build from the the bottom up and they've they've really invested in the state elections mm. which if we know anything about minor parties which are successful in australia is it's usually that the ones who do best start from the bottom up right it's they try to build some momentum from state elections they try to build a few put a few pieces on the board so to speak and then they'll try to grow into the federal space
0: well the lesson we've had from senate voting was that uh, fluking your way into a Senate seat, thanks to some favourable preferences, was ne- never has never been a recipe for building a sustainable political force. Whereas, you know, winning winning the state seat of Orange or holding seats in the New South upper house over a long period of time, you could imagine being a more sustainable strategy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You you've got to put a few pieces on the board, and then you know we know that once minor parties do that, they can try to utilise the resources that come with. You know having members in upper houses or whatever it may be and they can use those resources to try to expand and to build the vote so i think the shooters and fishers um, are a different force to a lot of these others the the personality-based parties um, it doesn't mean that those personality based parties can't be successful because of course we've, we've seen they can right um, but um, certainly the long-term play the long-term strategy is that that rooted formation that grassroots style organization i mean This is what we know about why the Greens have been so successful, right? So you've got to start from the base up if you want to be successful long term in Australia as a minor party, I think. You can have success if you want to have this um, personality-based parties, but it's not necessarily going to be there long term.
0: So you talk about the Greens, and they have very effectively uh, kind of consolidated the the minor left. Not, Not entirely. You know, you have Sex Party and Animal Justice who've won state seats. But they've they've very much taken a dominant role and a national role. Do, what, do you see a similar thing happening on the right? Do you like how how would that even look? I don't
1: see it at present. I, I think there's a number of obstacles to any sort of grand coalition on the right or some unification of all of them, and a lot of that has to do with ego and personality. Mm-hmm. That there would have to be uh, a lot of those. Um, personalities that are leading these parties, the Hansons, the Catters, and so on, would have to come together and form some sort of agreement. And I'm not sure that they're willing to do that because I think they love the limelight. They love they love the yeah. um, the, the spotlight that they get by being the leader of these parties and you know having this name recognition. So at present, I just can't see them coming together as anything resembling the kind of the right wing version of the Greens. I just don't think think it's possible and I think there is still a bit of diversity there in the, the policies they have, um, not just on social policy, but I think there is a little bit of difference on economic policy and clearly some of these parties are much further to the right on issues like immigration and Indigenous affairs than some of
0: the others. Mm. Well, you were saying before we started that you've noticed a bit of a trend that uh, the nativist, the anti-immigration sentiment seems to be spreading amongst parties that didn't, that sort of didn't really emphasize that kind of stuff in the past.
1: Yeah, look, I I really think it is. I think that they've, um, a lot of these parties on the right have taken notice of um, not just the success of Hanson, but also just the broader international forces. And they think that they can tap into this market. And um, I guess, some of the research that I've done recently with Sean Ratcliffe at University of Sydney is we tried to look at what percentage of the population in Australia, the US and UK had um, strong anti-immigration attitudes. And we found that it was about 23 or 24% in Australia. It was about the same as in the US and the UK. So there is this, this substantial pocket of voters that have anxiety about immigration so if you can tap into that there is a you know a a significant level of support there enough for you to definitely win upper house seats um
0: so one other thing I, i find interesting is uh the the kind of resurgence of one nation you know a lot of these other parties kind of scrape for every for every bit of media attention or every opportunity and kind of get their one chance and then we've had one nation that uh disappeared from the scene for a decade and then has come back strongly uh, since the last election. And uh, it seems like there, there definitely has been a lot of discussion around what the role of the media is in encouraging this kind of stuff. You know, Steve Bannon will be on um, Four Corners tonight. We had uh, Blair Cottrell on Sky News. What do you think that, that says about um, the, the rise again of Pauline Hanson?
1: yeah look, I think the one nation story is really fascinating because they've they 've more or less contested every federal election for twenty years yeah. um, but they completely fell off the radar where they were getting you know zero point four percent of the vote or whatever um, for the period where Hansen was away. then Hansen comes back and of course they bring back the name recognition they have the advantage of the double disillusioned election, which certainly helps them of course Hansen would have been elected anyway but you know the double disillusion clearly helps them in 2016 um, but in the lead up to that election they got absolutely no attention they got zero media attention zero oxygen and then since they've been back and uh hansen has been back in the senate the platform the media
0: has given to hansen has been extraordinary although i find it interesting you say no attention before the last election and i feel like there was very little attention to One Nation as a party or to Hanson as a political figure, but she definitely got a lot of attention as kind of a celebrity, as a, like an ex-politician in the same way that sometimes Mark Latham has, sure. where we treat them as someone who's an, a former actor in politics rather than an, a current actor.
1: So yeah, I mean, I guess her name recognition was still present, right? She still was able to build her, her personal brand by going on dancing with the stars or whatever it was, right? Um, but I don't think there was this 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 focus given to One Nation as a serious force. And of course, why would there be? No one thought they would do anything, right? Um, but in the aftermath of the election, um, the mainstream media have been extraordinarily uncritical of Hansen and One Nation, I think, and given them a platform um, across all different mediums, I mean, you know, you can see Hanson on breakfast television now. She's on the radio. These are the platforms that really legitimise the, the the views, the policies of this party. And I think adding to that, um, the coalition has to hold some of the blame here as well, where. They've continu- continually since the federal election played footsies with One Nation about different deals, whether it was preference deals or, you know, even discussions about working with them sort of broadly defined. Again, that legitimises One Nation in the the minds of many of these voters who perhaps normally would vote for the coalition, but they think, well, I mean, why don't I just vote for this, for, for this
0: mob, right? I'm sure that this will keep being a big topic as we get closer to the next election. But for now, I'm just going to move on to the next election that's coming up in Australia, which is this weekend. There's a by-election for the state seat of Wagga Wagga in southern New South Wales. Uh, it was a safe Liberal seat for over half a century and most recently it was held by Daryl Maguire who um, won it in 1999. He resigned uh, not long ago after a not very favourable appearance at the Independent Commission Against Corruption or ICAC. One thing I, f- I think is interesting is the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers party, as we discussed them earlier, who have had kind of their eye on um, regional conservative electorates at by elections since they won the state seat of Orange a couple of years ago. They actually did a reach tell poll that had them in fourth place, um, but it showed that the Liberal Party was only narrowly in the lead, followed by Labor, and then an independent Joe McGurr, who's a local academic. So it's gonna be hard to predict this seat, um, but it's gonna be the last test of the New South Wales state government before um, next March's state election. Um, and, you know, the statewide polling suggests that the coalition is the favourite to win, but not by very much. Um, do, you, do you have any thoughts, Glenn, about about these kind of conservative regional electorates and the dynamics?
1: Well, I think it's always interesting when one of these, we, you have one of these seats, whether it's by-election or part of a, a general election, um, because clearly it opens up opportunities for independents who if they win a seat like this it's very hard to get rid of them but it also op- opens up opportunities not just to potentially steal a seat but also to just continue to grow their their base and their momentum which is mm. obviously part of the plan for the shooters here um it'll be interesting to see how it turns out and if one of these whether it's McGur or the shooters can actually get ahead of one of the, the major parties and actually turn this into a, um, a serious contest.
0: I mean, uh, it's a New South Wales election, so it's optional preferential, so uh, that will mean that the preference flows won't be as strong, and it does kind of favour the leading candidate, but mm. you would have to think, particularly in an, in an election like this where a lot of votes seem to be going to minor candidates, if um, if someone like McGurr or the Shooters could get ahead of Labor, yeah, they they would have a good chance of winning it. and that that is a seat that the Liberal Party wouldn't have expected to have to worry about when it comes to March. So it's it's one of these interesting races that uh, could produce a situation where um, one thing I find really interesting is that there's a good chance there'll be a hung parliament in New South Wales at the next election. We've now got three Greens, and they have a good chance of winning a fourth seat in Lismore. We have these two kind of urban, semi-urban, progressive independents. That's six. We now have a shooter. That's seven. That's seven. If we could end up with a rural independent or a shooter less likely a shooter in Wagga Wagga you end up you're counting up to eight cross benches at which point it becomes quite hard to, for either the major party to form a majority and you could end up with this kind of very diverse cross bench of you know um inner city and north coast greens and urban independents and rural independents and conservatives and uh, that, that could be a big dynamic in the next New South Wales State Parliament. And we are seeing this kind of surge in support for, um, for crossbenchers in the lower House. We're going to leave it there. And that's it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thanks to Glenn for joining me. Glenn, where can people find you online?
1: Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Glenn Kefford and also just my details at Macquarie.
0: Thanks. So, you can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. And if you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes because it helps other people find the show. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like the show on Facebook. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thank you to Krista Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. We will be back in a fortnight where we'll be discussing the results of the Wagga by-election as well as other topics as we head towards the Wentworth by-election. But once again, thanks for listening.